You know, as a church family, we are unapologetically committed to the claim of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. We believe with all of our hearts that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. All of Scripture is inspired of God, and it is all profitable. All of it is good. But we are going to put that conviction to the test this morning because we're going to spend the whole morning in the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1. How many through the Bible in a year reading plans have been derailed or thwarted by the dreaded begats? Our father of. In all seriousness, though, I want us to see the benefit of even this genealogy for our understanding of Scripture, our understanding of the Gospel of Matthew. I want us to see that genealogies and, and elements like this in Scripture are not the flyover states of the Bible, but these are even inspired for our benefit and for our good. Because it's my belief that in this genealogy, Matthew is doing something significant. He is giving us a preview, um, a glimpse of the good news of of many of the things that he will declare through his gospel. We're getting a a taste of, of what he will show us about this King Jesus and the kingdom that he is building. Yes, in this genealogy, Matthew is declaring that the true king of the people of God has come. The rightful heir to the throne of David is here to establish an eternal kingdom that we saw and talked about in Isaiah chapter 11 last week. This Jesus is the son of promise. He is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. He is the heir. He is our king. But more than that, through this genealogy, Matthew is giving us a taste of what the kingdom that Jesus will rule over will be like. It will be a reflection of who King Jesus is and the work that he came to do. So in revisiting the line of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 and thinking through the the people that God used to bring his son to the earth, Matthew begins to help us understand the true nature of the kingdom of God. You see, this kingdom... The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom ruled and reigned over by Christ is a surprising kingdom. That's a theme that Matthew will unfold over and over again in his gospel. It's a surprising kingdom. It's far different than we expected. But friends, I'm here to declare to you that this kingdom, although different, is greater. Greater than we could have ever imagined. Let's see this morning how through the genealogy... Matthew gives us a taste of this unexpected kingdom and asks God to stir our hearts as residents, as the people of God in this kingdom today. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Here's what the word of God says. And would you just ask a special prayer for me as I try to pronounce all these words? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, 
and Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Jeram, and Jeram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations, from Abraham to David, were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now let me just say something as we begin to consider the full effect, the full impact, the full weight of the genealogy that Matthew presents here in his gospel. You see, there are some unique attributes, some unique characteristics to this genealogy. It is incomplete. If you were to go back and trace the line of Jesus from Abraham to to Jesus in the Old Testament, there are people that Matthew intentionally leaves out, which means he intentionally includes some people in this genealogy. He's doing something here on purpose. This genealogy was never meant to be exhaustive. There's a record in the Old Testament, but rather Matthew is using this genealogy as a teaching tool. In presenting it the way that he does, the the 14 generations language in particular, Matthew is helping us as a reader see the way that God has sovereignly and intentionally moved all of history to set the stage for this exact moment when his son would come to fulfill the promise to Abraham and establish a greater kingdom than David's. And by including the specific people that he does and organizing it in the way that he does, he tells us a great deal about King Jesus and the kingdom that he will build through his ministry upon the earth. He is doing something on purpose here. And so our our desire this morning and our Intention this morning is to get a glimpse of what Matthew is unfolding in this genealogy as it prepares us to understand in greater ways the whole of his gospel. This kingdom is a surprising kingdom. Again, not what we expected greater. And the genealogy helps us, as we begin Matthew, understand the greatness of this kingdom. So let's think through, based on this section of scripture, what the kingdom of God will be like and how it's greater 
than we could have imagined. Why it's surprising in the best possible way. What is the kingdom of God like? Firstly, as we see here in the evidence of this genealogy, God's kingdom is a kingdom for broken people. It's a kingdom for broken people. The first thing that jumps out to me is I read this genealogy beyond the way it shows God's incredible faithfulness to his promises is the overwhelming brokenness of the people who are included in it. Now, not everyone is wicked in this list. Not everyone is bad. Some are honorable, but there are some seriously sinful people in the line of Jesus. And listen, I know all of us have a part of our family that we're not proud of, and maybe you're the person in your family. But there's a lot to talk about around the Christmas table in this list, in the, the history of the family of Jesus. Think about who is included here. Verse 3, we see Judah and Tamar mentioned. Judah after selling his brother Joseph into slavery, has an interesting encounter with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Tamar was married to Judah's oldest son, Er. But Er was so wicked, Er erred so much, that God put him to death in Genesis chapter 38, verse 7. And because Er's brother would not provide an heir for Er through Tamar, she pretended to be a prostitute to have Judah, heir's father, provide an heir. So that's here. And Jesus' family. Now, Rahab, who's mentioned in verse 5, didn't just pretend to be a prostitute. She was a prostitute until God helped her rescue the spies in Jericho in Joshua chapter 2. And then there's David. David was the father of Solomon. Verse 6 says, this is recorded in the history of Scripture. David was the father of Solomon by another man's wife. The wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Isn't that odd that it would be included here? And not only did he have an affair, he murdered the man to get Bathsheba for himself. You can find that fun story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And let's move on to Solomon. Solomon, the son of David, didn't just go after one woman. He went after many women who turned his heart away from the Lord to foreign gods. And then Solomon led the people of God away from God to worship these same idols. And the, the kings who came after him, many of them were unabashedly wicked. Ahaz worshipped foreign gods, practiced human sacrifice, and defiled God's temple, according to 2 Kings 16. Manasseh was somehow worse. According to the Bible, Manasseh did more evil than the nations that God expelled from Canaan. He also promoted idolatry, and he murdered the innocent, according to 2 Kings 21, verses 9 to 18. And the wickedness was so bad, and the way the people of God embraced this wickedness, that God sent Babylon to conquer them and lead many of the people of God out of the land of promise into captivity. I could go on, but you get the picture here. In the line of Jesus, we have murderers, adulterers, prostitutes, liars, idolaters. Basically, you, you find one of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, and somebody in this line broke them. 
You have a people pictured here in Matthew chapter 1 in decline, moving from promise to, to kingdom to despair and captivity in their rebellion. And yet somehow, for some reason, God used them, these broken people, to fulfill his promise. More than that, he redeemed their brokenness in bringing about the Son. Why would God do that? And why would he inspire Matthew under the Spirit to to write this genealogy in this way? Because God wants us to see something about his work in Christ. He wants us to see something about the nature of of Christ's kingdom and, and what Christ has come to do. Listen, the people of God are not a perfect people. They could not be a perfect people. In fact, the more they tried to achieve righteousness on their own, the harder they fell. But God redeemed their imperfection. God redeemed their sin to send a Savior who could be perfect, who would fulfill the law, who could keep the commandments, and in so doing, take the sin of his people upon himself and give to them his righteousness. Here this morning, church family, you don't have to be perfect to enter into the kingdom of God. If you did, none of us would get in. The entrance to God's kingdom is not based on your merit or our merit or my merit, but rather the merit of Christ. We are able to be a part of the people of God in his kingdom because of the work of Jesus. And isn't this one of the beauties of the message of Christmas, that God came to us to save us when we could not go to him? We had Christmas adventure, as you heard last Sunday night, and I made reference to this story. I think it bears repeating this morning. I was listening to a a video from one of my favorite pastors, David Platt, and he was talking about how he was having a conversation with some of his neighbors who were not Christians but practiced other faiths. And they were arguing in their conversation that basically all religions are just human pursuits to get to the same place, and we're all going to end up in the same place at the end of this life. And so David said, let me just make sure I understand what you're saying. You, you probably have a conception of life like it's a mountain. And God's at the top of the mountain. And we as human beings are trying to work our way up to this mountain. And, and different religions are just different paths up the same mountain. And they said, yes, it's exactly what we think. And he said, well, what if I told you that Christianity understands this life and the pursuit of God a little bit differently? What if I said to you that Christianity says that no matter how hard we try on our own to climb this mountain, we can't do it, that we will always fail. There's no amount of work that we can do to get to the top. And so here's what Christianity says, that when we could not get to God, when we could not climb to God, God came down to us. That's what sets Christianity apart from every religion in the world. That God in his mercy and his grace came. Taking on the form of a servant. On human flesh, humbling himself even to the point of death on a cross. So that God at the exact right time could exalt him. That's what Christianity is all about. That's the message of Matthew, the message of Advent, the message of Christmas. What we will see 
As we study, Matthew's gospel is a compassionate Savior who came to seek and save the lost. We will see a Savior who came to make the sick well. And even more than that, friends, what's more is that God redeems the failures of his broken people for his glory. Not only is the kingdom of God a place for broken people, somehow God uses our brokenness to bring about his divine purposes. Listen, I can't get over verse 6 of his genealogy. David was a great man, right? We all we grew up in church. We've heard about David. We've heard about his, his kingly reign and the, the golden era, age of the people of Israel. A lot of great things happened under David. But listen to how he is described here in verse 6. The son of Jesse. And then David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. His adultery is recorded for everybody who reads the Bible from that point on to know about. Now, how many of you, let's just go back in our minds to the thing that you're most ashamed of, to the thing that you wouldn't want anyone to know about because you don't know how they would look at you on the, on the other side of finding out that, that thing that you did or that, that thing that you said. Imagine if God inspired that to be written down in the pages of Scripture for Christians for thousands of years to read. Would anybody in here want that? No? And yet, God does that with David, and through the brokenness of David shines his glory even brighter. Listen, the kingdom of God is for broken people because in our brokenness we evidence the glory of God. I want to encourage us this morning. Can we just, can we get over this pretend game that we've played in church for a long time where everything in our life is perfect and everything in our life is okay and we got to come in here in the church and fake it until we make it? That's not Christianity. That's not what it means to be a part of the people of God. Now listen, we're not going to go glory in our failures, but what we all know is that everybody in this room who is part of the people of God is saved by the grace of Jesus because we are sinful, broken people. And we still live in a sinful, broken world. And, but for the grace of God are we here today. And still, listen, there are, there, are, there are places in our life that we have held on to. There are places in our life that we have buried because of shame. And in so doing, we rob God of his glory. How many of us in here have a testimony of, of overwhelming grace shown to us by God that God could use to comfort someone or call someone to himself that's struggling with the very same thing? We need to, we need to quit allowing people to think that we were high and mighty when God saved us when all of us know that we were far and away from the, the, the righteousness and holiness of God. And what greater testimony can we give than to say to those around us, you don't know how far I was away from God. You don't know how far he had to reach to find me. But praise be to God that even in my rebellion, the grace of God could find me. And none of us are going to come in here and, and throw our dirty laundry around, but I just wonder if we are so arrested by the Holy Spirit of God and so committed to his glory that when God moves for us to share even those moments of shame, 
to give evidence of his glory? Will we be obedient or will we withhold his glory? Will we withhold a blessing that God can use for his people? Because he is, he is cultivating a people for himself who are broken so that through our brokenness his glory can shine. That's the kind of kingdom that God is building. Not only that, he's not only building a kingdom for broken people, he's building a kingdom for all kinds of people. All kinds of people. Another interesting aspect of this genealogy is the fact that Gentiles are included. Non-Jewish people. This kingdom is not just for the Jewish people. Listen, Rahab and Ruth were both foreigners. Bathsheba, at the very least, was married to a foreigner because Uriah was a Hittite. Now, these would be shocking inclusions to anyone, any Jewish person and first century, the first century world reading this genealogy, not only because they are women, which is surprising in and of itself, but because they were not Jewish. And again, this is intentional for Matthew as he's setting the stage for his gospel. From the very beginning, Matthew wants us to know that God's plan has always been to bring the nations into his kingdom. Yes, this plan began with Abraham and has unfolded through a unique people, a a singular nation. But the plan was always for that nation to be a blessing to all nations as God would pour out his blessing on the world through Israel. And now in Christ, that blessing has come. And God is extending his call to be a part of his people to the nations, creating a new people, a spiritual people, united by faith in Christ and the Spirit. Matthew wants us to know that this work is for everyone. And the calling. For all of those who come to faith in Christ, the calling for everyone who reads the gospel of Matthew and believes in the provision that God has given in Jesus is to go to the nations to build God's kingdom and proclaim the good news. How is it that Matthew ends his gospel? It's the Great Commission, right? Matthew Matthew chapter 28, 18 to 20, go Make disciples of who? All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because that was always God's intention. Hear me, church. There is not one person, no one on this earth, created in the image of God who is not welcome among the people of God so long as they come in repentance and believe, so long as they come with faith given by the Spirit. There's not one person who has ever lived who is not worthy of hearing the gospel of Christ. God desires their worship, and more than that, he deserves their worship. His blessing is not reserved for one people, one economic status, one nation. It's available to everyone through Christ. And I, for one, being a Gentile, am super pumped about that. (laughs) And finally, what is the kingdom of God like based on the genealogy here given in Matthew 1? It's a kingdom for broken people, a kingdom for all kinds of people, and thirdly, it's an eternal kingdom. An eternal kingdom. I mentioned this earlier, but 
in the story of the Old Testament recounted in this genealogy, there is a noticeable decline after David. Yes, David brings about the golden era and the history of Israel, and Solomon somewhat sustains it, but as the wickedness of Israel's leaders grow and as Israel follows them into their wickedness, a decline sets in, a a movement begins downward toward judgment. The kingdom divides, it's conquered, and even the return coming back from their captivity is not everything the people of God hoped for. That is, until the true king, King Jesus, comes. Right here in Matthew chapter 1, we see a turning point in the story of God and his redemption of his people because King Jesus will establish an eternal kingdom that will never pass away. This king will bring unity instead of division. He will, ins- he will inspire faithfulness instead of waywardness. He will establish and lead the kind of kingdom God has always desired, filled with a people who truly display the blessing of living in the design of God. And this kingdom, it will not be based on earthly power, but divine power. It's an upside down kind of kingdom where the poor in spirit will be blessed, where those who mourn will be comforted, where those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied, where the merciful will receive mercy, where the pure in heart are able to see God, where the peacemakers are truly sons of God, where the persecuted are held in high esteem, and where suffering is a sign of faithfulness. And because God has established it, and because God is pleased with it, and his son who leads it, this kingdom will last forever. There's no power that can come against it and win, even though they will try. Try God's kingdom, King Jesus and his people, they will be victorious, and we will enjoy that victory forever. Now, friends, isn't this a great kingdom? Isn't this the kind of kingdom that we want to live in? Isn't this kind of of people that we want to be a part of? It may be not what we expected. Certainly wouldn't be the kind of kingdom that we would design in our own wisdom. If we were choosing how to build a kingdom, here's what we would likely have said. Give us the best. Give us the perfect. Give us the righteous. Give us the powerful. But God has chosen what is foolish to shame the wise, according to 1 Corinthians 1.27, and in doing so, has established a surprising kingdom that is better than we could have ever imagined. And one of the great joys of studying the gospel of Matthew is seeing this kingdom unfold and learning what it looks like to live as kingdom citizens, as the people of God. And I know that I'm going to really rejoice in doing that together as the people of Bayleaf in our time in the Gospel of Matthew. So, how should we respond this morning to Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17? How should we respond to this window and to the Gospel of Matthew that he gives us in this genealogy? Let me just offer you four responses to consider this morning as we ask the Holy Spirit to help us discern how he wants to move in our lives 
through the preaching of God's word. Firstly, receive. Would you receive God's invitation into his kingdom through Christ? Maybe there's some of you in here who are still trying to work your way up that mountain, who think that the way that we get to God is through good moral behavior and that if you're just good enough, you can get there. I want you to hear this morning that according to scripture, that approach will never work. You cannot be good enough on your own to get to God. You cannot work your way to God. But here's the beauty of the gospel. When we could not get to God, he came to us. And the Bible says, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. If you will repent and believe in Jesus. Repent saying that I know it's my sin that separated me from a holy and righteous God. I, my sin's what created that gap that's like a mountain. And I know that I can't get to God, but I believe that Jesus came to me so that through him I can get to God. And so I'm gonna give my life to him and follow him all of my days. That, that invitation, that opportunity is available to you today. If you feel the spirit of God working in your heart, moving you toward repentance and belief, I'm just asking that you would follow that movement into obedience. In just a minute, we'll have some pastors and ministers here in the front, and we would love, love to pray with you and talk with you more about Christ and what he has done for you and how to walk in faithfulness to him. So receive that invitation today. I can't think of a better way to celebrate Christmas than to receive the greatest gift that's ever been offered to man. And that is salvation in Christ. And you may think, well, Jared, you don't know. You don't know how bad I am. You don't know how broken I am. Listen, friends, I hope that you see from the testimony of Scripture that your brokenness is not greater than the grace of God in Jesus. And don't diminish what God has done for you in Christ. Don't diminish what Jesus did for you on the cross by thinking that your sin is greater than his sacrifice, because it's not. There's nobody beyond the reach of Jesus. You just gotta surrender. Surrender and let him take control of your life. And for those who have received, would you entrust would you entrust yourself completely to God? Would you entrust even your greatest failures to be used for his kingdom work? I just I can't get over how many testimonies are in this room today. All of us have different kinds of testimonies, but there are hundreds of declarations of the grace and glory of God sitting in these pews right now. Will we be the kind of people who testify, who give witness to what God has done for us in Jesus? Because listen, I'm not here for Jared's glory, and you shouldn't be here for your glory. We're here for the glory of God, right? And even our greatest failures, even our greatest moments of brokenness are, are opportunities for us to show forth the glory of Christ. Can we just commit church family, Bailey Baptist Church, to be the kind of people who don't glory in our sin, but surrender it to Jesus, surrender our brokenness to Jesus to be used at the exact right time to encourage and display the grace and glory of God? Let's get over this fake, this fake stuff, right? Because we know. Just turn to your neighbor and say, I'm sinful. Turn to your neighbor and say, I know. <laughs> All right? 
Let's just get it off, okay? Listen, we're not here to put on a show for ourselves. We're, put on a, we're here to gather to worship our God, right, and give him glory. And listen, let's, let's quit robbing his glory by, by suppressing the evidence of his glory and the great work of salvation that he has done. Let's tell about God's I don't want anybody to come in here and think that they're too broken for Jesus when they got broken people all around them to help them know that they're not beyond their reach. Thirdly, let's engage. Let's remember that the whole, the whole thrust of Matthew's gospel is to tell the good news, right? I'm going I'm to tell you the good news so you can believe in it so that then you can join with me in going to the nations to declare the good news. So friends, let's... Let's engage. Let's tell the good news of Jesus Christ here. Let's tell it at our dinner tables. Let's tell it in our workplaces. Let's go and tell it on a mountain that Christ is born. Let's declare joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. This is good stuff that we're... Listen, don't you know there are broken people? Don't you know there are people in darkness who need to behold the great light of Christ? Let's not miss an opportunity, especially in this season, to declare that Christ has come and he is coming again. And finally, would we all rest in the promise of God's kingdom? Would we we rest in the hope of God's kingdom? This is another unique, I think, attribute and characteristic of Christianity. I think we have the market cornered on hope. All is in this room, we still feel the evidences of brokenness, even though we are a redeemed people. This world is not yet new. The stain of sin still around us. You're going to feel hardship. You're going to feel disappointment. You're going to feel the uneasiness of this world, this earthly kingdom. But could, could we just rest in the, in the hope and the truth and the promise that God has established a kingdom in Christ that will last forever, that will not fade, that will not be threatened. And there will come a day when we will step fully in to that kingdom and the sadness and brokenness of sin and this world will permanently fade away. I know Christmas is a tough time for some people, especially if you just lost people. You're feeling the the loss of a loved one in particular. Sometimes people feel very lonely or depressed in, in this season. And if you are doubting God's love for you, if you are doubting if there is hope, would you just, just look at the story of Christmas? And would you hear the proclamation of the gospel? That God loves you, and the evidence of that is that he sent his son to save you. And that whatever weighs you down, can be taken off by the work of Jesus as you focus on that promise of an eternity with God. Let's rest, friends, in the promise of God's kingdom. Let's hope, let's set our hope in the right place. And let's allow and ask that God would use the gospel of Matthew to stir that hope rightly in us. Amen? Wherever you are, would you bow your heads? Spend some time asking the Lord to help you know how to respond and that we would be faithful as he leads in responding.
Do you need to, to give your life to Christ? We're gonna have some pastors and ministers here in the front. We'd love to pray with you. Do you need to receive that invitation and quit working and rather run to a, a merciful savior? Do you have a story to tell that you've been holding back because you were ashamed of what you did? Can we just turn the, the conversation there and just be amazed at what God has done? Would you be willing to share it for God's glory and so engage in the work of the kingdom? Who do you know that needs to have the, the hope that we have in Christ? And would you be willing to ask the Lord to give you an opportunity to share with that person, especially during this Christmas season? And will we all rest in the promise of the kingdom, an eternal kingdom who's only going up and we're going up with it. Praise the Lord. Father, would you help us? Be faithful in our response to your word. Help us to, to enter into this kingdom through Jesus. Be good kingdom citizens while we're here and rest in the future kingdom that awaits. God, we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You stand and respond as the Lord leads. Thank you for worshiping with us. For more information about Bayleaf Baptist Church, visit our website, bayleaf.org.